If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 12 and 13 tonight. And we're, in the book of Philippians, it is kind of an outsized book about joy. I was looking this week, and actually one quarter, 25% of the times that Paul uses the word joy in his letters occur in this book. And we're doing this series right now called A Life Worth Living. We're talking about what does it look like to live a life that is worthwhile? What does it take to justify our own effort to exist and to work and to store up things and to build families and have reputations? Like, What kind of life, when we look back in the rearview mirror, is going to be a life worth living? And so we've been talking about really encouraging awesome things like perspective and ambition and like having that one thing in your life that you're chasing after. And tonight, we're talking about obedience. Obedience. Get the guest guy to talk about obedience. But actually, what Paul gives us a picture of is obedience, biblically, is the only way to get to joy in the Bible. The only way to get to joy is through obedience. Now, if you're anything like me, most of us, when we hear the word obedience, immediately have some roadblocks. And I was thinking this week, what are the major roadblocks for obedience? Like, when I hear that word, what, are, what, what, what guards do I put up? The first one, probably for a lot of us, I don't know how many of us are really sincere about this, but a lot of us are like, well, I would obey if I knew exactly what God was asking me to do. We're going to take care of that later. Most of us, that probably isn't the major problem. The second thing, though, is some of us, if we can just be honest, we, most of us just have authority issues, right? So we're just in the habit of not doing things because somebody else told us to do them. Like, I live most of my life this way. If somebody has told me to do something, I would just go ahead and not do that thing because somebody else told me that. Like, I'm the guy that didn't read a book until I was 18 because somebody had required me to read them. Then I turned 18, I was in college, I was like, there's some amazing stuff in these things. And I had to learn at that point to read. Um, now I love it. But, I mean, it's just it's one of those things, like, do you ever find yourself doing stuff that you never did before because somebody told you to? Like, the other day I found myself making my bed. I was like, man, I like the way this looks. This is, now it feels good. I'm like, what are you doing? Stop. Like, mess it up again. But it's because somebody had told me to do it that I didn't want to do it. And the third reason that I thought of is some of us are scared of what God might actually do in our lives if we obeyed him. Some of us, maybe this is the deepest one, are afraid of what it would truly be like. What would God do to me? What would he take away? What would I miss out on if I actually obeyed him? When I think of obedience, I always think of this story from the Chronicles of Narnia, which I did read after I was 18 years old. The silver chair is, is one of the ones at the end of the series, and at the beginning of that book, there's this little girl named Jill, and Jill is friends with Eustace, and together they end up in the land of Narnia, this crazy mystical world, and Jill is lost, and so she's running and running and running, and she sees this lion, and she's terrified of this lion. And so she's running away from him through the first few pages of this book. And then finally she realizes she is so thirsty and she finds this brook. And as she gets up close to it, she looks over and sees that the lion is laying right, on the ne right next to the bank of the brook. And then they have this amazing little exchange. And the lion says, 
are you not thirsty? And Jill says to him, I'm dying of thirst. And he says, then drink. And she says, well, would you, would you mind going somewhere else while I drink? The lion answered only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. She said to him, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do take a drink? The lion said, I make no promises. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. She says, do you eat little girls? And the lion said, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. And Jill says, well, then I dare not come to drink. And the lion says, but then you'll die of thirst. She says, well, then I suppose I must go and look for another stream. And the lion says back to her, there is no other stream. That's obedience in a nutshell. We know at the end of the day, if you're following Christ, you know that you should be obeying. But there's that fear of like, but if I do, then what is it going to take? What is God going to take from me? What is he going to make me do? What is he going to make me look like to other people? What joys am I going to miss out on that I could have had if I really come near, will I be devoured? But the Bible presents a really different picture of obedience. Like I said, the Bible is pretty clear that it's a joy to come and obey God. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is how in the world is it joyful to obey somebody else? How in the world is it joyful to submit your will to somebody else and do what they tell you to do. Maybe a better picture of obedience, or at least when we struggle with obedience, would be like this. It's like when we get up to heaven, if you've read the last book of the Bible, Revelation, you know that what we're preparing for is the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's going to be this giant banquet. We get up there, it's like Downton Abbey up there. Angels are flying around, getting everything ready, and we're getting our placemat set, and we have our silverware and everything, and like you're tucking in your napkin, getting ready to eat because you don't want to get those, those pearly white clothes that you've been given dirty. And so you're setting up to eat, and right as they're bringing out the food, or maybe it just like appears on the table like the movie Hook. Do you remember that? It just, all of a sudden, it comes to life on the table. It would be as if you're just ready to dive in, and the person sitting next to you has got their arm arms folded, and they're like, I'm not eating. It's probably poisoned or something. I've got, I've got other food back at the mansion on the streets of gold that I'm going to eat. You would wonder to yourself, what is wrong with you? This is what you've prepared your whole life for, is this banquet. And for somebody to hold out with reservations is the same sensation. I think God sees us resisting obedience the same way as we would see that person sitting at the table being like, no, no, I'm, I'm not eating. I've got, I've got other food I like better. When it comes to joy in the Bible, there's one road. And we see that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Look with me at the text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I have four points. First point, 
Maturity requires obedience. Maturity requires obedience. You see this in the first half of verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed in the past, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So this passage, just to give a little bit of context here, is sandwiched between two passages that talk about practical obedience to God. Right before this is probably one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2 opens up and it says, hey, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any fellowship among you, then make my joy complete by having the same mind. And then he gives this great example. He says, you should treat others better than yourself, just like Christ, who didn't, didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He left heaven and came down and made himself nothing for you. And then God is going to exalt him. He's going to give him a name, like the song that we just sang, above every name. And at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. But for a moment, he gave all that up to be humiliated. Paul says, you also should have that attitude. And then he says this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, right after this, he jumps back into the argument. In verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So why these verses in the middle? Why take a break from telling us how to obey and give us these two verses that are kind of like a sketch or an anatomy of obedience itself. Well, the first point that Paul wants to make, like I said, is that maturity, your maturity as a believer, depends on your obedience. Now, some of you, like the, the theology people in the crowd, are like a little nervous right now. So this verse says, work out your own salvation. And you're like, no, 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 no. Salvation comes from God alone. So what does he mean, work out your salvation as an act of obedience? And I just want to leave that out there for a second. I just kind of want everybody to be uncomfortable because I think obedience is in the middle of where two groups of us usually find ourselves. Like on the one hand, when it comes to obedience and working out our salvation, there are some of us who are super comfortable. This is, these are the let go and let God people, right? These are the, you know what, I just, I don't really... I don't really work for my salvation because God has accomplished my salvation for me. So it's really just all about me getting out of the way. That's where some of us find ourselves. There is another group of us, though, that are on the other side. And these, these are the ones of you that are worn out. You've come in here. You've been doing all you can all week to try and please God. You're the kind of like God helps those who help themselves kind of person. And you're like, I don't want to give God any excuse not to help me. So I'm going to shoulder the load by myself. And I just, want, I just want kind of everyone to be uncomfortable for a second when we say that your maturity depends on obedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Every believer is called to holiness. There's no such thing as the, in the Bible as a Christian who is not growing in obedience. Like that doesn't, that doesn't actually exist biblically. I remember when I was a freshman in college, back when I, when I took up reading, I was reading this book called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And since then, Jerry Bridges has become, I've never met him before, he died, I think, last year. 
but he has become like a spiritual father to me in the faith. I've tried to read everything I can get my hands on because what I realized when I read that book for the first time is holiness requires effort. Like, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church like all my life, VBS. I was in Awana for a while. But somehow I missed, there was a disconnect in my heart between obedience and effort. And what Jerry Bridges argues in that book is, look, every Christian is required to put forth effort for obedience. And once you see this, this is everywhere in the Bible. Like once you, once you realize this, Old Testament, New Testament, narrative, poetry, prophets, everybody is talking about putting forth effort to be obedient to God. Uh, there's this guy, I, I got to read this email to you. There's a guy in my men's Bible study, and a couple of years ago we were, we were going through this section of Scripture where it was just obedience time after time after time after time. And we had talked about it, we'd had lunch and talked about it, and uh, a couple of months ago he sent me this email he started out the email saying, I have just finished reading through the Bible for the first time, all the way through, cover to cover, reading through the Bible. And he says, I am now more mindful than ever of seeking God's goals, serving by his mean, knowing it is for his glory. I so appreciate your emphasis on Jesus being Lord, which leads us to obey him. My prayer is to live life in obedience to him. And this can only be done through love and devotion. Your friend, Ron. It's everywhere. If you just open up your Bible to any chapter, there's an opportunity to obey. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see God. Without holiness, no one will see God. God. So that means that we can be done with the, the, the kind of like pop Christian mentality that it's the bonus Christians who really pursue holiness. Or like it's the pastors who are really working on putting their sin to death. The Bible doesn't give us that option. The Bible says that every single person is required to work towards obedience to God. Now what Paul is saying in this verse specifically is your maturity depends on it. You will never mature as a Christian until you take holiness seriously. And one of the reasons we know this is because of the way he starts out this verse. He says, as you've always obeyed, now, not just like when I was there, but in my absence, I want you to obey. What had happened in the Philippian church is when Paul planted the church, it was easy for them to obey because Paul was there. Like, Paul was their fearless leader. He was the person who'd been in prison for his faith. He was the person preaching on Sundays. He was leading their small groups. He was teaching them. It was easy in that moment to obey. And for us, it's easy to look like a Christian when there are other Christians around. Like, when you go to church on Sundays, when you go on Wednesday nights, when you're around your Christian group of friends, it's easy. But what about the times when they're not? Like, what about the times when the Philippian church starts to be persecuted for their faith and Paul is not there anymore to save them? What does it look like for you when your Christian friends aren't around, your accountability partner isn't around, your pastor isn't able to give you advice? Maturity is being able to obey in the presence and in the absence of our spiritual mentors. For them, it was a maturity question of, 
of, of can you be the kind of church that you were when I was there, even if I never visit you again? For believers, maturity is a specific training of the human heart by the Holy Spirit to obey the call of God at all times. I heard this, I heard this great definition of obedience the other day. It says, an obedient person is the kind of person who would obey God in any given circumstance. So we shift our thinking from saying, am I obeying this command, to am I becoming the kind of person that would obey God in any circumstance? Like, am I cultivating a heart that is going to be responsive to God even when I get blindsided? Even when I don't see something coming, have I put in the time and the effort and the energy to create a spirit that is submissive to what God has for me. So in the first half of this verse, we see that your maturity requires obedience. You'll never mature without obeying God. Secondly, in the second half of verse 12, we see that obedience requires work. So maturity requires obedience. Obedience requires work. Dallas Willard, who's, who, who uh, is another spiritual father who's passed away, said, it's magical thinking amongst evangelicals that rules today. So he's saying, most, mo- the problem with most evangelicals isn't, it, it, it isn't your obedience, it isn't, it's a mindset. And the problem is, most evangelicals believe in magic. That's the problem. He says, it's magical thinking to believe that you can sit in a sermon and be around Christian people and listen to the Bible being read and grow in obedience and godliness. It's magic. You believe in magic if you think that coming here is going to grow you in godliness. It won't. It's magic to think that if you just sit in church long enough, like by osmosis or something, you're going to grow to be a holier person. We don't believe in magic. We believe in effort. We believe in striving. We believe in working towards holiness. One of the Puritans, John Brown, said, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in training yourself to think as God thinks, and will as God wills, and do as God does. That's holiness. Paul is clear across all of his writings that you'll never make any progress towards godliness until you discipline yourself. He gives us this picture in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, train yourself for godliness. For while the the bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and for the life to come. That word discipline, discipline yourself for godliness, is the word gumno. It's where we get the word gymnasium, where we get the word gym. And what it means is you must have a training regimen to get to godliness. So it's like take the effort and the intensity that you spend working on your physical body, going to the gym, the sacrifices that you make if you're a runner or if you're a crossfitter or if you go to Planet Fitness, like any of these things all together, you should look at your spiritual life that way. And for most of us, when we think about that, it's like, what do you put more effort into? 
like eating right, lifting, running, being fit, or pursuing godliness. Like most of us will spend weeks and weeks and weeks training for like a half marathon. You do like a 20-week training plan for that. But what he's saying is like, when's the last time that you spent 20 weeks trying to cultivate godliness in your life? We, we train our bodies knowing that we're going to get new ones. Like when, when everything is said and done, you're going to get a resurrected body. But you won't get a new soul. So train your soul for godliness now. Because it's worth it now and in the life to come. So a lot of us will be like, okay, so if that's the case, like what should I do today? What should I do tomorrow? What does working towards obedience look like? Well, start by setting a regimen. Pick something and work on it. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is you can read your whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and you can ask this question, how is this helping me to become like Christ in any place? And you'll get something. All right, so you can ask that in Genesis. You could say, like, knowing what I know about Christ, knowing that he gave himself for me, knowing that he purchased me with his own blood, what should I do given Abraham leaving his homeland and going to a place that God hadn't told him yet. I bet you could find an application for that. Or like you're in the book of Psalms and you see David just pouring out his heart to God. And you say, I have a better hope than David does. What would it look like for me to grow in thinking the way that he thinks or doing the things that he did? Every day, when you are in your quiet time, when you're reading your Bible, you can apply it to a regimen of godliness. I'll tell you one of the things I've been working on. I was reading in my quiet time a month ago or something in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And you like read through that, it's just this list of commands, you're like, pray without ceasing, that's great. Don't do it, but it's great. And I didn't even think twice about it. I just finished the chapter, moved on. And it wasn't until I was reading this address by Charles Spurgeon, where he's talking to all these pastors. So he's, he's in a room like this, and it's full of pastors, and he just makes this comment where he's like, so you guys are pastors, so well, let's just be real with each other. Since you're in ministry, you wouldn't go more than about 15 minutes without praying. Like, I'm just going to assume that. And I'm just sitting there being like, what? I go all day sometimes without praying. And I pull up to this place every day. I pray in the morning, I come and do my job, then I go to bed at night, and I pray. And here's Spurgeon being like, hey, we're pastors, right? We wouldn't go more than about 15 minutes without praying, would we? <laughs> so I was like, there's my thing. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What would it look like to do that? So I put a plan together. Ross and I challenged each other to do it. We've been doing it. It's almost eight, pray. And we're, we're texting each other every hour, trying to get into the place where we are praying without ceasing, that we would be connected to God at all times. And it has been one of the hardest things I've done, but it's been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done because it's forced me to get out of my comfort zone of praying these prayers to God, like, God, please help so-and-so do this and, and this person do that. And God, you know, I just I hope this goes well and you know more than I do about it. It's got me to the point where after you do that like six times and it's not even lunch yet, you got to pray something else. Like, you, you, you got to get with the program. you got to do something else. And so it's taken me from praying about things and praying to a person. Like, most of my prayers now are shorter, but they're more impactful. 
Now, instead of trying to list off all these things and getting down on my knees and trying to be like, can I hit 10 minutes? You know, like now it's just like, Lord, help me. I need you. I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, what are you thinking? Not them, God. You know, like what, 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 what should I say to this person? Lord, I, I just invite you into this moment. I just acknowledge your presence. I want you here with me all day. I'm working at that because I want to put forth effort. I know that my obedience is going to require that I set up a plan and get accountability and link arms with somebody because my obedience isn't going to happen by magic. It's going to happen through effort. There are some things, this is cool, but there are some things biblically that you can only learn by obedience. Right? Like you could read all the systematic theology in the world. You could read your Bible and memorize it cover to cover. You could spend time with believers and be, and be serving and be a member of the church, but, but there are certain things, biblically, that only open up to you as you obey God. If you really want to know God, obey Him. See the difference in your life. Start trying. Start giving effort to obey Him. Start praying through the Word. Get with some people and do it. Just get around some people. And you may have some crazy things that you're trying to do, but you're doing them, and God will reward that. Like, I, I, didn't, I, I don't think I brought my phone up here, but i got to tell you guys this. So some, somehow, a couple months ago, I got in this group text, this old ladies prayer group group text. Like, I don't know, you know, you know, Marge and Phyllis haven't figured out that that contact with the numbers, like, isn't their friend. But for a couple months now, every week I get texts from these women that I don't know. And um, I got one right before I came over here. I was going to read it to you, but I forgot my phone. But it was basically like, hey, ladies, it's that time of the week to pray. They were like, so-and-so, so-and-so is having feminine surgery so everybody, they want you to pray starting tomorrow. I'm like, this is, I'm in too deep. Like, I, I, can't, I, I, gotta, I gotta get out of this thing now. And then it was like, thankful for you warriors, heart at the end. But I tell you what, I didn't intend to get in that group, but I've been praying for those ladies. Like, I can't get out now, I'm, too, I'm in too deep. Like, I'm, Marge, I, I, I've gone to war for that woman. Like, I don't know where she lives, I don't know who she is, I don't know what she's struggling, but I get her prayers every week, and I'm praying them, okay? So it's like one of those things like, did they know that, that they were going to get these prayers in that group text? No. But now I'm praying all day, every day. And they got me praying for them. Only God could have drawn that up. You never know what God's going to do in those moments where you just say, God, this might be foolish, but we're just going to, we're going to do this. We're going to obey you. We're going to put some effort forth. We're going we're to we're work hard at what you've commanded us to do. Point number three, work requires God. Oh, everybody can breathe a big sigh of relief now theologically. It's not up to you. It's not up to you. The point of this passage in verse 13, so he comes out strong. He says in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13 is really cool in, in the Greek. So I'm, I'm reading the ESV, but I'm just going to give you a paraphrase that mirrors what this says. So what it does is it takes the word for God and it puts it at the beginning of the sentence, which is very weird in Greek. It, it's like an exclamation point, like an all caps. So the sentence basically says, God... It's him who energizes you. 
and supplies you with the desire and the energy to do what I've commanded you to do. So it's like he says in verse 12, hey, you work out your own salvation. You work. That word is energize. And it says, but God, God is the one who does it. So we as believers, we are working out what God has worked in. Like, so our, 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 our role is always responsive. It's never original. We're using borrowed energy. We're using something that God has put in us, and the goal of obedience is to work what he's put in us all the way out through us into our lives. So I'll just give you a picture. I wrote this when I was hungry, but it's like when you go to Andy's or Baskin Robbins. Okay, follow me here. And you get, that, you get that Oreo or that Reese's or Butterfingers or whatever it is, and you get that in the ice cream, and they put the little clump of ice cream on there, and they just put the thing in the middle. Now, if they serve that to you in your cup, you would want your money back. You wouldn't settle for that. Because what do you want them to do? If you're a marble slab, you want to see them use those cool blades and stuff and mix that thing up. At Andy's, they just do it all in the back. You don't want a single bite of that ice cream that doesn't have Oreo in it or you're getting your money back. That's what it's like. So he's saying, like, God has given you this deposit. He's put something in your life. And you, you're like that little lump of ice cream there. And what's going to take for you to get everything spread through your life is you've got to be stretched. You've got to be turned over. You've got to be folded up. You have to be pulled apart. And then God is going to work out all the stuff that he's put in in your life. So we respond to what God has already done inside of us. And we know that your salvation is not complete until every square inch of your life is covered with what God has given you. What's so interesting about this verse is that God, it says in verse 13, God is not the one who's doing the doing, if you get what I mean. Like it says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work. God is not doing the doing. We are not robots, okay? He's not like Geppetto up there just making us do the things that he wants us to do. No, God is not doing the doing. He's doing the empowering. He's doing the supplying. He's throwing logs onto the fire. And so we can wear ourselves out all day, every day, knowing that tomorrow he's going to have a new deposit in for us that we can begin to work out into our life. The verb that's used, I already mentioned this, is the, where we get the word energy. And so we can translate it in this whole, this whole set of verses. As you have obeyed, in my presence and my absence, energize your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who provides the energy in you, both to will and to energize for his good pleasure. It's the same thing all the way through where we are receiving from God and then spending what we've been given when it comes to our godliness. Spurgeon says this, grace all sufficient dwells in you as a believer. There is a living well within you springing up. So Christian, use your bucket. Keep drawing because you can never exhaust it. There's a living source within you. Continue to struggle. You will not exhaust the life force that God has placed in you. 
So as believers, we are working out what God has worked in. So while maturity requires obedience and obedience requires work, work requires God to initiate. And so we as believers are not doing this out of our own strength. We're doing it out of God's strength. So how do you do this? This is like getting like eerily close to the let go and let God again. Well, I just want to suggest one thing to you, and I think maybe the, the way this works may be like a, a, a major relief to a lot of us. And in order to do that, though, I need to correct one common misunderstanding. So you hear people say sometimes, God will never give you more than you can handle. God, he's not like that. He will never give you more than you can handle. We have to have more than we can handle in order to depend on God. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where that verse is taken out of, out of context, it says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God will always provide a way out. So that verse, actually, instead of saying, like, hey, there's nothing more than you can handle, it's saying, look, you don't have an excuse when you give in to temptation. You don't have an excuse when you give in to temptation. What we should be asking God for every day, just add this to your prayer every morning, is God, give me more than I can handle today so that I will stop settling for what I can do and I will start doing what only you can do. So you pray, you ask God, God, give me more than what I can bear because I want to be near to you today. Like, I want to be at that limit where I know, look, under my own strength, this is not happening. Those are the moments where you begin to grow in God because until you get to that point, it's all you. You never grow in holiness when you're depending on your own strength. So I pray, God, help me to see that you have something so much bigger in my life than the things that I have my sight set on, and it's going to take your power to do it. And if you pray that, he will make you uncomfortable. And he will pull you out of, your, out of your zone, out of your strength area, out of the places where you are comfortable. But it's in those moments, it's when you're like teetering right on the edge, like, I can't do this, Lord. Those are the moments that you begin to grow. And so we don't, we don't say, hey, hey, God would never give me anything that would, that, that would be more than I can bear. We say, God, every day I want you to give me something more than what I can bear. It says, David says, it's good for me to be near God. And we know biblically God is not near selfishness. He's not near self-reliance. He's not near human wisdom, human strength. He's not near any of those things. He's near the brokenhearted. He's near the humble. He's near the empty, the poor in spirit, those who are crushed. He is near the people who have come to the end of their rope. He's working power out of weaknesses. If you want to be near to God, then pray, God, give me more than what I can handle. Last thing, point number four. There's this great little phrase at the end of this passage. Look, it's for God works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. Point number four. This process is God's greatest joy. This process of maturity and obedience and work and God supplying the need is God's greatest joy. Look at this. It says here at the, end of this, at, the, at the end of this verse, it says, all of this, God working in you, he does it because he likes it. 
He does it because it brings him pleasure. Right? This is the same word that's used in Luke 12, 32, where he said, Jesus says, don't fear, little flock, because it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To go back, most of us, we have it in our minds that maybe God is out to get us, or maybe God's way and when we obey is going to make us miss out on something. But actually, like I told you, biblically, this is the way to the greatest joy. There's this great passage in John 14 where Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the person who loves me. Right? So this is back to the thing, like if you're not obeying, we got, are you, do you love God? That's what he's saying. The person who, who loves me is the person who obeys. And look at what happens to the person who obeys. He says, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, Trinity, me, my Father, and my Spirit, will come to him and make our home with him. So you decide to obey. You go out on a limb and you're like, God, oh, I know you're calling me to do this, so I don't want to do it but I'm going to do it. Like at that very moment, the Trinity itself is like, all right, pack your bags, boys. We are moving in. Like we're coming to stay. Extreme home makeover at your house. We're moving our stuff in and we're going to be right there with you, going to propel you, to empower you, to energize you to be obedient. So we obey God. We trust on his strength. And it says this is done out of God's good pleasure. You don't have to compel God to know you. Like you don't have to like get in the way of God's plans to bring you joy. It is his pleasure to bring you your deepest joy through obedience. So we sit down without a thought to the feast. We eat, we take up, we, we go up to the stream next to the lion. We drink because we know that it's his good pleasure to do this for us. As we sit in, in our rooms or, or we, we open our Bibles and we read them and we make a plan, we get to know God every day because we push ourselves to a point where we need him, where we become the kind of person who obeys him in every circumstance. I'll close with this. Jude is what we were teaching in the college ministry, and he ends with this, this benediction that's my favorite, my favorite thing in the New Testament, my favorite benediction in the New Testament, he says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless in the presence of God with great joy. It's his joy to keep you from stumbling. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, it really confronts our flesh to decide to obey. Lord, there's just something about us that just doesn't want to surrender our will to you. Lord, we want to trust you. We want you to love us. We want to be free and forgiven. But Father, for some reason, we just we don't want to obey you. And Lord, we thank you that you've set everything up to work in such a way that our obedience brings joy. Father, help us this week 
drawn near to us this week. Lord, I just pray that as the people in here that are really going to take this seriously, that are going to do this, that are going to say, like, I'm not going to submit to this any longer. Like, I'm not going to fall and stumble in this anymore. Lord, help me. Lord, as those people get out of their comfort zones this week, I pray that you would draw near to them. Lord, I just, I pray over the people in this room who are going to take you at your word and they're going to say, okay, if this is what it looks like to be a Christian, then I'm in. Father, I pray that you would make it so evident the way that you're empowering them, the way that you're freeing them, the way that you're energizing them. Father, I also pray for a group of people in here I know that don't know you. Lord, they're not trusting you. They're not obeying you. But they want joy. They want to be free. Father, I pray in this moment that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, that you would break their hearts that you would open their eyes, Lord, that they would go and talk to somebody tonight in the back or when they're driving home and just say, hey, I, I just, I want that. I, I want to be free. I don't, I don't want to put up with this anymore. Father, we know you love to do that. So Lord, energize us tonight to be obedient people. And for the sake of your son, Jesus, we pray.